save the mothers. Let us clear their way. Let them have their sane, build our tomorrows. Save the mothers. I'm Heather McLeod, and, and that's the song of the day, Save the Mothers, the chorus, actually. I'll give you the whole thing later. Fresh off the press. The song and the episode today are inspired and informed by a conversation with Phil McGuire that I can't wait to share with you. It starts in a bar. Lakehead Bar on Cumberland, to be exact. Something different this way comes. Something, something different. Something different. Something different this way comes. Something, something different. Something different. Back in July, shortly after wrapping season one, I got a chance to hang with some angels once again. Barley's Angels, a local branch of a club that gathers beer-loving women in communities all over the world. I joined Barley's Angels here in Thunder Bay several years ago. Drea at Sleeping Giant Brewery launched a chapter shortly after she and her husband and their partners launched their brewery. And she's made sure something gets organized, to which we angels are all invited every few months. But with COVID, I haven't seen much of my fellow angels for way too long. I haven't nerded out over beer. That simple, lovely way to render water safe. The women have been brewing in so many cultures for so many centuries. There I go again, happily nerding out over beer. Anyway, we don't just talk beer at Barley's Angel events. We catch up. And my news was this podcast, why I started it, why I love doing it. And what about it is hard. Finding something to say, not hard. Finding someone to talk to, way harder than it was a decade ago when I was a CBC journalist booking interviews. Not just, I think, because I don't have the CBC behind me. That would almost certainly help. But people are leery of going on the record. And they're wary of, of people asking to take a shared conversation and, and give it to the interviewer to own, kind of, to, to edit it, to, to broadcast it, to frame it. It used to be most people were delighted to share their stories with me, to be heard and listen to, and get to share their take on things. But, I mean, I could just interview people who already know and trust me, but that's sort of limiting the pool. And the whole point of this podcast for me is to, is to learn new things, hear new perspectives. So, back to the bar. I was delighted when one of my fellow Barley's Angels said, you should talk to my friend Phil. I will introduce you. Oh, those words are such a gift. Please, if you know someone you think I would like to talk to on this podcast and you can introduce me to them, that would be fabulous. My fellow Barley's Angel said, you should talk to Phil because he wants to save the mothers. He has t-shirts and everything. You'll love him. And she was right. Phil was great. And with that introduction, he not only talked to me, he fit our conversation into a busy visit to town. He came to me, so I didn't have to go see him, because Phil McGuire lives in Nipigon, not far away, near the Black Sturgeon River. He's a Métis man, and the mothers he's thinking about when he asks us all to save the mothers aren't just fellow humans. He's talking about all of our relations. 
I made Phil McGuire coffee. You can hear his spoon against his mug every once in a while as we chat. And as I started recording, he started in with an example of mothers he'd like to save. Down the highway from my place, that uh, one section of highway, there was, uh, in June, this was spring, yeah. There's a cow with twin calves. So they dragged her off, uh, off the highway into a field. They, they dragged the cow into that field and, and the cow had twin calves inside. Oh. It was a big cow. So uh, the next day I brought my brother there to show him a picture of the cow and there's another cow with twin calves inside, dead. So, so there's six moose dead already. So anyway, uh, a couple of days later I checked again, there's another moose dead dragged off there. So the, the highway workers dragged the moose off in, in the same area. So I think, I think the first cow was the mother of the second cow, I think. So maybe the smell of the cow on the other side of the highway uh, attracted the moose, but I, I, don't, I don't know that. But there was nine moose killed in that same area, this side of Black Jordan River. A cow with twin calves, a cow with twin calves, and all single moose on top of that. There should be, it should be fenced off so the animals can't get there and they go underneath the highway or something. Yeah. If people want food for the future, you have to protect the mothers. The mother moose, the mother deer, the mother partridge, whatever you, you, you consume. Well, for example, you, you save a chicken, it lays eggs and has young ones. You, you, can, you can eat the young ones. As they grow up, you can eat them. So the mother is the main seed of food. Example for moose, uh, the cow moose would have uh, twin calves in the springtime, you know, discourage people from killing the cow, of course. And uh, the cow in her lifetime should, could have 15, maybe 17 moose in a lifetime. So if you protect the mother, you have lots of food for years and years and years. Yep. So how else are we maybe killing mother moose in the spring that we could avoid if we put our heads together? Well, <laughs> a, lot, a lot of the cows are hit on the highway, uh, on the main highway and on the tra- train tracks, a lot of the cows. So that seems that, like something we could solve if we put our heads together. I was just in a park, in Alberta, yeah. where they've put... Um, fencing? They Well, they put some fencing in place, but mostly I noticed the bridges and the tunnels that allowed animals to... Would, the kind of fencing would tunnel them a little bit towards that safe way to yeah. get over the highway. And, and I think some of the reason was just so it was safer for all the people driving on the highway, because I know I've hit a moose on the highway. For both. For both. It yeah. was scary. Yeah. yeah. But I like how you're focusing more on the value of not... It's not like we get any value out of roadkill moose. Yeah. We're just losing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, so fencing is the only solution uh, so the animals can go underneath the highway. Um, that's the only solution. Or slow down and, <laughs> slow down and keep an eye, your eyes open uh, on the highway. That's, that's all you can do mm-hmm. to save the mother moose and the mother deer. And bears, of course. Another example that you first talked to me about is um, rivers. So I remember talking to Gord Ellis. He's, I used to work with him, so he's a friend from way back. And he said most of the rivers in northwestern Ontario were dammed. And I thought, wow, that's a lot of hydroelectricity. Yeah. And he said, well, it's not all necessarily active dams. It's just easier to put up a dam than to take a dam down again. 
Yeah. And, uh, and sometimes that can have real implications for spawning. Tell me more about that. So uh, most, most of the rivers on the north shore of Lake Superior that feed Lake Superior, most of the rivers have their own, own blockage, uh, waterfalls or something on the river. But the only one, the only river is Black Sturgeon River that does not have a, block, a natural blockage. It's a man-made dam. It blocks the spawning of fish. You go there, you go there, and you look <clears throat> in the springtime when uh, during the spawn, and the fish are gathered at the bottom of, of the uh, blockage. So they can tell so, that up there is a good place to go. Yeah, exactly. They're trying to get the river, and they're they're stopped from getting up the river. There, there's uh, in Blackstone River. There's probably ten different kinds of fish, and um, I don't know you're preventing all them fish from from bringing food up up upstream. upstream. Black Sturgeon River, uh, Black Bay uh, used to be the highest production of uh, walleye in, the, in, in all of Lake Superior. That's what Black Sturgeon and, River opens into, right? Exactly, yeah. The Black Sturgeon River is uh, 100, 100 kilometers long. There's uh, four lakes up there. And uh, I think it's 40,000 acres of land, of ecosystem that, that feeds the river, river system. Wow. And um, there's no blockage other than the man-made blockage. Which hasn't been used for its intended purpose for a long time. It's not exactly. an important hydrologic it was put dam. In, uh, it, uh, the, uh, they put, the uh, paper company put in the uh, blockage in uh, 1959, and uh, they used it for five years, and after that the uh, MNRF took, over, took it over. Their, their control, uh, the uh, lamprey control, that's why it was left there. Mm-hmm. Is that still as urgent? I remember that the lamprey were credited no, they, they, with uh, just cleaning out the fish of Lake Superior. Yeah. Well, um, I did the research and all that kind of stuff, and they were they were catching lots of lake trout, like three and a half million pounds per year of lake trout out of Lake Superior. It's a lot of fish. And uh, it kept going down and down and down, and, and, uh, and uh, the sturgeon uh, are... Uh, their bottom feeders, their surgeon were taken away, they're killed, fished or whatever. And um, the lamprey had, had free range. Uh, there's, there's nothing nothing to stop the lamprey. So so the lamprey, uh, they had to use the chemical to get rid of the lamprey, and they got rid of the lamprey, most of, most of them anyway, as of today. Uh, I'm not sure what percentage, maybe 90% or 95% of the lamprey are gone out of the Lake Superior. Um, it's, it's questionable whether it's overfishing or lamprey killed the fish, I'm not sure. But the um, Department of Fisheries and Oceans that are responsible for lamprey in Lake Superior, they say uh, there's 95% are gone, the lamprey are gone. But all the times, all the years that we've been, uh, we've been at, the, at the river, over the past well, dozen years anyway, we've never seen a lamprey there. We saw a lamprey there when we were kids. You know, at, when they blocked the river off in 1950, after 1959, there were lots of lamprey, but they're gone. They're, they're, they're just not there, period. But you are seeing fish old enough to spawn. So oh, for sure. give me a couple examples of, of fish that we would really benefit from having more of because they successfully spawn off this river. Yeah, there, there's, uh, there's pickle there, there's pickle trout, there's rainbow uh, sturgeon, for sure. They're all there. Mm-hmm. They all gather there, and they're trying to get up the river, but they, they get blocked off. Yeah. So fish isn't like an annual plant, right? It doesn't pop out of its egg in the spring and, and lay another batch of eggs by fall. No. It's, it's a lot of 
uh, time before you get a mother who's ready to spawn. Yep. It's uh, on uh, pickerel, uh, they have to be uh, three or four years old before they spawn. They don't spawn every year. They spawn at different times of every spring. Surgeon have to be uh, at least 20 years old before they spawn, and, and they spawn every other year. So to protect the mothers is pretty hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And without those new uh, babies being brought up there and laid up there, yeah. what, what does all this pickerel and sturgeon, what would they bring upriver as well? What are their role in that ecosystem? Well, and, and, and going upstream is all food. It's all food for, for all of Lake Superior. Well, fish, for example, and bugs and crayfish and everything, they're trying to go up the river to have their young lay eggs and all create food and for everything up there. And in return, the, the, uh, the ecosystem supplies Lake Superior with food downstream of the river. For, for example, if you, uh, if you bring uh, one pound of uh, food up the river, you'll get 20 pounds back, same as you do in your garden, the same thing. If you put a seed in the garden with one pound of fertilizer, you'll get 10 or 20 uh, cucumber or pumpkins or squash or whatever. That, that's the way I see it anyway. The, the, if you, the river supplies the ecosystem, the ecosystem supplies the river. There's, there's only two ways. So there's, there's been a theme as I've been, as I've been talking to people and, and learning things with this podcast. And, um, and one of them is called, I think of it as, uh, you see what you're looking to see. And we tend to be blind to what we're not looking to see. And that can be a real problem in the big picture. So what I'm hearing here is we have a, a dam that's being maintained because 60, 70 years ago, uh, it helped with the problem of the lampreys. The problem of the lampreys has changed over time. The solution has not been much revisited. And I don't hear anybody but you talking about the value that we're losing by not uh, opening that river back up to the natural migration of life up that important river. Yeah, the the river's uh, very, very important. Uh, The ecosystem upstream is very important. And uh, at the river, um, over the years, uh, before, the, before 1959, it produced lots of food, lots of food. And if, if you uh, unblock the river, it would create that food again. It might, it might take a little while, a little while, but, but it'll all come, come back, for sure. And you know this not because you're reading reports or working with scientists no. from outside. No. You're just looking and yeah, just, just know what I you see. remember. Yeah. And you talk to other people who know this land. Yeah, yeah. I was here before they put the dam in. I was here after they put the dam in, or blockage, whatever you want to call it, a dam or blockage. And uh, I was there when it, when it got washed out. In 1968, it washed out. We didn't get much rain either. Just uh, something happened up above, and it got washed out in 1968. And all the cabins that were there at, at the dam got washed away, and, and part of the land got washed away. But it re- was repaired. Mm. Wall was built to where the washer was happened, and uh, it's been there ever since. But that makes me think of another thing, um, which is it's harder to um, invest in the future we can see than in the yeah. past we can prove. Yeah. Right. So we know that with climate change, there's more water in the air. There's more extremes to any mm. weather: heat domes, droughts storms, mudslides, whatever, hurricanes, 
So we know that, but it's hard to invest in it when you can so much more easily say, but it's not happened for 100 years. It's not happened for 60 years. So why would yeah. I spend my money there now when I don't know for sure that it's going to happen and when it's going to happen? And, and I feel like um, that's understandable kind of a blindness, but it's not acceptable. Like we need to find ways to um, really believe our own eyes and yeah. act a little more proactively so that um, we protect what we have and we invest in what we want to protect. Mm-hmm. Um, but you do know that there are some sturgeon and pickerel and lake trout oh, rebounding. I see the pickerel and sturgeon all the time at the at the dam, yeah. And a sturgeon's a bottom feeder, so is it like yeah. a vacuum cleaner? Is it an important kind of keeping everything in balance it's, part of our lake? It's very important. It, the, uh, if the sturgeon's happy, everything in the lake is happy. That's what they say. The sturgeon cleans the lake, same, same as your fish tank at home. You get a bottom feeder. Well, the sturgeon's a bottom feeder. They, they, they clean off all the rocks and all the dead the dead stuff in the bottom of the lake and everything else. So they're a long-living fish, of course. Uh, they live, who knows, 80 years, 100 years? I don't know. They're very, very important. Sturgeon, mm-hmm. very important of the lake. But I'm just loving this sort of, um, this way of summing up, a way of, of weighing decisions and prioritizing important things yeah. um, that you've come up with that save the mothers. Yeah. So how do we weigh, you know, the dwindling risk of lampreys against the growing needs of the native species that are that are ready to go back up and uh, lay their eggs upriver? Uh, how do we balance the cost of fencing along a highway to the loss of moose in the spring? Yeah. All of this is boiling down to save the mothers, yeah. save some Big seed time. from your harvest. Yeah, the... the um Anything coming from the lake swimming upstream, whether whether it's any kind of a critter or fish or whatever, you, you should not block off a creek or a river. The, the creek or river is there to feed the land, the ecosystem where it's coming from, right? Mm-hmm. So if you if you block the river off, you, you're stopping food from getting up in the ecosystem and and developing up there, because because the uh, along the shore of uh, well Lake Superior. Out in Lake Superior, uh, the fish eat fish and all that kind of stuff. But on the land, that's where everything's born on the, on the land. So if you protect the land, uh, the birth of the land, well, you're protecting a food, the food source. Uh, it's plain and simple. It's uh, yeah, and, and it's and it's also more complicated than we'd like it to be, right? Because sometimes we just make a, a a decision because this plus this equals this. And we kind of carve away all the other impacts of that decision because they're yeah. not they're not part of the equation we set well, out with. Well, uh, even even the lamprey, they call it a invasive species, but but they're full of eggs and they go up upstream. They go to lay their eggs. They lay their eggs upstream, and they die, right? The the female dies, and and uh, the young are buried themselves in in the sand as they come downstream. They bury in the sand and, and they live in the sand for three or four or five, eight, five years become, until they become adults. And when they become adults, they go out in the lake and they feed off fish. That's what lamprey does. And the pickerel, for instance, uh, they have uh, 100,000, 200,000 eggs. And the saying is, uh, for each pickerel that lays eggs, you get 65 young that's, that, that hatch, right? 
That's a great so, return on investment, I have to say. That's a big, big return, yeah. yeah. Well, any, any fish, uh, well, one example uh, I read about uh, in Minnesota, a female surgeon caught lots of eggs. There was uh, up to 30 or 40 pounds of eggs in, in, in that fish. So just how many young ones should have, I do not know. I have no idea. Right. But what you're saying really is is a flip of a switch from what can we extract from this land to meet the needs we came looking for to how can we live with this land so it does not get impoverished by our presence. It feeds us and it keeps growing to feed others. Yeah, yeah. If you encourage growth, uh, you'll you'll get you'll get the results after. I'm sure, and and the uh, the only growth <laughs> growth you have is in the fish and moose and, and all that stuff is is if you protect the mothers and let them do their thing and you'll have lots of food, mm-hmm. lots and lots of food. The other the other um, place where I feel like we have invisible friends, that if we take care of them, they'll take care of us, is the living soil or. The living diversity of the bush and sometimes we go um, simplifying the world and saying well I just want that plant so that's the only one I'm going to support and we don't even look for how it might actually need its neighbors mm-hmm. and and we might actually need its neighbors it might be part of a yeah. whole community that we don't know and understand enough to um, to manage without just being respectful yeah. well mother nature has has its own way um... Uh, if you encourage growth, uh, you're going to get growth, and no doubt about that. Um, and the sun and the water and the earth uh, create food, and if you protect the food, well, it's going to create, it's, it's going to multiply. You, t- you take an incident of uh, fish eggs, the fish has to have sp- um, proper spawning area. Uh, I think the pickerel needs uh, like a 4 by 8 sheet of plywood area, a big area to, to spawn properly. And uh, like I say, uh, each each pickerel will will have about sixty five young. You know, they make it. Depending on the, yeah, uh, some some have more, some have less. But all the rest of the eggs are food for for everything in the water, along the shore, or animals, or critters, or crayfish, or bugs, or is food and and everything on the land eat eat them bugs in the water and, and it carries on. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so. So if you stop that food from getting there, um, everything in the land is going to fade away eventually. Mm-hmm. The trees, the animals, uh, whatever is there is, is going to go away. I think with our worry for the future, we talk a lot about burning less carbon and doing less of this and less of that. Mm-hmm. But what you're talking about is doing more. Yeah. Doing more, taking care, doing more, thinking through. Well, what, what and, I, and having more faith in how powerful nature is on its own, if you yeah. just take care of it. Yeah. The the uh, for instance, uh, if if you bring the food up the up the river, up the water, creek, or whatever, uh, you feed the feed the forest, and the forest feeds off carbon, right? Mm-hmm. So <laughs> it becomes a carbon sink. It's helping. Exactly. Yeah. If you, if you feed the ecosystem properly, it becomes a, a carbon sink. Yeah. I don't know. It's our <laughs> secret. It's our secret weapon. Yeah. Right exactly, here in our yeah. back door. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah if you grow a plant, well, uh, the plant feeds off oxygen and, or, or carbon and gives off oxygen. So, And everybody needs water and air, 
No doubt about that. Uh, water is the most important thing in our world. It's more important than anything in your world. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Air is important, of course. You don't, you're not going to have air without water, of course. <laughs> you got to have water. Yeah. Everything's more connected than we'd like it to be. But oh, if we yeah. just have faith in the power of that, we've got a great friend mm-hmm. in, in the wild. Uh, Mother Nature knows best, of course. Uh, knows more than everybody. If you help her out a bit, uh, you'll get help in the end. For Thanks. sure. Thank you so much, Phil. This has been lovely. Okay, thank you. Phil McGuire is a Métis man who lives near Black Sturgeon River in Nipigon and has for over 60 years, by my calculation. That conversation inspired the song I gave you a snippet of off the hop. And here it is, Whole. Brand new, written just for you. Save the mothers, let us clear their way. Let them have their say and build our tomorrows. Mother moose, mother fish, mother dragonfly, mother water on whom we all rely. Mother wild, mother wise, mother takes our hand. Mothers lead us towards our promised land. Save the mothers, let us clear their way. Let them have their say, build our tomorrows. Mother goose, Mother wasp, mother mushroom, mother air, which holds us in one shared womb. Mother soil, mother wild, mother takes our hands. Mothers lead us towards our promised land. Save the mothers, let us clear their way. Let them have their say and build our tomorrows. Save the mother. The theme of this season of Something Different This Way Comes is, what does good look like? Phil McGuire is looking to save the mothers. That's what good looks like to him, to prioritize things like building safe passageway for wild creatures over and under our roads and train tracks, to get rid of man-made blockages on our rivers, because that saves the mothers that need the way clear, to seed our future, to feed our future, to restore and rebuild the wild. The wild is really the only way to draw down carbon, really draw it down back to a stable climate. It works on so many fronts at once. It's so deep and diverse and beyond our understanding. We need to honor it. It's more resilient, the wild, powerful. It has a wisdom that is not our wisdom a much broader, deeper, wider one. And it's generous. More generous than anything we can do is just the human part of the family. 
We need to respect and include all of our relations. As we weigh our options, we need to give them a big, huge chunk of what we value. Another thing that I keep thinking about after talking with Phil is, where are our ears? Why is it so hard right now for good ideas, like Phil's ideas? Good ideas you get when people pay attention to the places they live and work and think about what would work better, what good looks like. Why is it so hard to get those ideas heard? Where are our ears? I guess you could try and talk to the MNR about the dam and the MTO about the highway, maybe the railway companies about the railroads, but how exactly? I feel like, in fact, I'm quite confident in saying that, that most organizations invest a lot more in publicity and branding and controlling how they are talked about and what their brand is than they invest in listening, engaging, and respectful conversation regularly with the people they employ and serve and support and either as customers or taxpayers or both, who pay them. I think good looks like more listening, more respecting the expertise of people about where they live and what they do and what they think would be an improvement. I mean, I love me a good survey. I make the most of any comment boxes, too, and I, I do feel like there's a few more surveys popping up of late, but a survey is more data collection than actual open conversation and engagement. It asks closed, yes, no, or on a scale questions. It boxes you in. Talking to Phil about Nipigon and the improvements he can argue in support of there, where he has lived his whole life, a thoughtful, smart man who pays attention, who really cares. I keep wishing, thinking about our conversation, that Phil had more ears listening to him. An easier time being heard. I mean, he's made t-shirts. That's great. But listening is what respect looks like. And respect is good. And many places are realizing the power of listening. People are hiring positions whose job is to go out there and listen to people, to gather them around and really work out solutions that are tailored to right in front of them, to what they're experts in. But I don't see a lot of that going on right around here. Not yet. And I think we could do with more. We need more of that all over the place in northwestern Ontario, in our government, our communities, our workplaces, the corporations that do business here. More listening. That's what good looks like. Save the mothers. Let us clear their way. Let them have their say and build our tomorrow. I've been reading To Be a Water Protector by Winona LaDuke this week. She's an Anishinaabe woman. She lives actually pretty close to here in northern Minnesota. And, I mean, I'm seeing the image from the book all over the place, and, and people keep referencing her, so I was really glad to track down a copy of the book at Entershine Bookstore. And she's brilliant. 
she is so dedicated in all the ways she is working to restore our world, to support justice, to build community, to protect our wild. And she's so celebratory of all these other people that are doing great stuff. Plus, I love the way her book is written. Like, it doesn't fall into the way that we tend to write. It sounds like she's speaking to me. It's so verbal. And that's hard to do. It's hard to write the way you speak, but she's excellent at it. She pulls me in, just a compelling storyteller. And I don't feel educated. That's a real test, right? When a book is just packed full of things you didn't know before, packed full of information, and, and you and you set it down not feeling stuffed full and educated by the book, but rather inspired and fed. To Be a Water Protector by Winona LaDuke. Highly recommend it. But in her book, Winona LaDuke talks about how many countries are choosing to take down dams. They're moving away from hydroelectric electricity. After weighing the pros and cons, often we have to say, informed by and and pushed by First Nations people that are right there on that river and have such a deep relationship with it that they can show you what was lost when the river was dammed and what we are suffering because of that loss. So you can really weigh not just the value realized in, in managing wild water through a dam system and, and in generating electricity through a dam system, but also the cost of, of that wild migration and transfer of nutrients upstream that open water allows and is lost when a dam floods and kills a whole, you know, long-to-establish coastline and also chokes off a water's natural flow. So with a broader set of information in front of them, so many countries around the world and communities are deciding that a dam is not worth it. They're taking down their dams. In fact, the United States has removed 900 dams between 1990 and 2015, and, and the rate has continued to be 50 or 60 more dams being removed. So as soon as the equation to weigh the wealth the wild carries up a river to all the land it feeds, dam removal wins as the better option. And she says, and I totally believe her, Canada is behind on this trend so far. Something different this way comes. Something different this way comes. And, and there are other ways to generate electricity, from wild water even, without dams. Wave-generated power, I mean, that technology's gotten really polished and powerful in the last decade or so, and I could imagine that being a thing in Terrace Bay. Running stream-generated power. It's a little small compact something, but we got a lot of running water in northwestern Ontario. It could be part of our solution, the suite of solutions we need to invest on many fronts. Water is used in something called a gravity battery, another proven technology that's been around for decades. I was just reading about this on the BBC. Pump water uphill when you have more power than you need to use just then, like when the sun is bright on your solar panels or... The wind is blasting, or the waves are crashing over your wave energy field. And then, later, when the waves die down, or the wind dies down, or the sun sets for the night, and you need more power than you can capture, you let gravity pull that water back down and generate the energy you need when you need it. 
There have been pumped hydrogravity batteries working well for decades all over the world. But they can't go everywhere. I mean, they tend to take up a lot of land. They need just the right topography to work. It's the perfect power storage solution for some places. But what's new and exciting is prototypes are being tested. People are getting excited for gravity batteries that use gravity to store energy without water. In Scotland, a company called Gravitricity has a 15-meter-tall steel tower suspending a 50-ton iron weight. When the power is hot, it pulls the weight up with their surplus power. And when the power is needed, the weight's allowed to slowly drop, powering a series of electric generators with a downward drag. In Switzerland, there's a company now they've built their tower 20 stories tall. It lifts a whole series of 30-ton blocks up when they have energy to store and back down when they need to generate it. You have to check out videos of these things in action. It's, it's, it's really cool. Gravity batteries. They get my imagination going. I mean, I can imagine adding patience to the equation. If we valued power efficiency over time efficiency... I can imagine a port full of storage containers. Why not make storage container management in a port into a dual-purpose gravity battery? Wait to lift up the storage containers until there's energy to spare, and then wait to swing them down into place until we need to capture the energy that descent would generate. I don't know. That's an idea. It's just really exciting to see what people are thinking of. Maybe that could be part of what good looks like, a new equation. But part of what makes it good is we're weighing many options, not getting too stuck on one or two, and we're looking at cost and value and opportunity in a more balanced way. In Thunder Bay, right, we have shipping containers that need to be moved, if my little idea could ever work. We have hills. We definitely have plenty of rocks. Maybe, along with batteries that use lithium or lead acid to store power and bridge us between times of generation, we'll find opportunities to add gravity batteries to our power storage arsenal here in Thunder Bay. Something different this way comes, something different this way comes, something different this way comes. So I went to a mayoral candidates debate this week. It was uh, over lunch. And I happened to sit down at a table with four guys who all work at Enbridge. They told me they had recently attended a conference at work where it was explained to them that electrification alone cannot solve the carbon-generating crisis of our current reliance on burning fossil fuels because it's too expensive. I had to think about that for a minute. Because, first of all, when it comes to saving the world, what could possibly too expensive mean? <laughs> and also, I mean, most fossil fuels are burned to generate electricity. But then I realized that they were talking about natural gas pipes, even propane tanks, 
Those are ways that we burn a fossil fuel to directly power things like furnaces and stoves with no electricity involved. Okay? There is spin going on here, right? I mean, I heard a few things. So Enridge has wind and solar generation farms, and, and they're building more. I mean, Enridge apparently runs the, the big wind farm near Dorian, which is great. I mean, there can't be too much renewable energy production, and I'm so happy to hear about corporations that are actively investing in building that resource. But my stumbling block was that they were being told we need to keep these natural gas systems. And here's what they said. So we can add renewable natural gas to our power grid. Hmm. I think these guys wanted to hear how their work, their job, their company is part of the solution. It's doing good stuff, which it makes me happy. I mean, I think we all want to be part of solutions to do the right thing. And there's a bias, right? When it's decided that what we're doing is no longer the right thing, you, you have to mourn and regret and feel maybe even icky about what you were doing up until that point of change. Maybe it wasn't a good thing after all. You went in good faith. You know, you didn't get into it to be a bad guy. And the fact is that right now, Enridge is mainly, mostly, vast majority of its business managing a fossil fuel. Enbridge mostly drills and refines and distributes and sells the fossil fuel known as natural gas. And frankly, that has got to change as soon and as completely as possible. So the second thing I heard talking to these, these gentlemen was, was that Enbridge is trying to put off that change and avoid actually fully answering their employees' question about sustainability by playing with words, specifically the words natural gas. I could feel the spin as they spoke. I mean, I wasn't quizzing them. It was just chit-chat, but it stuck in my head, right, after, after the lunch. So I went digging online for good information to make sure I was pretty clear in my facts from sources I trust. And, and if you check out my website at www.somethingdifferentthiswaycomes.ca, I put in a whole whack of links you can check out. But, but here's what it adds up to for me. Natural gas. It, it emits less carbon dioxide than coal when burned. This is their claim to being a low-carbon fuel. But what happens before that moment of combustion between extracting a gas and refining it and delivering it, all of that rest of the story outside of the pure moment of combustion? You have a fossil fuel that is as bad as coal. It's not a good guy. Natural gas is mostly methane, and methane is a huge contributor to the climate crisis and to global warming. About 1 to 9% of that methane escapes into our atmosphere. It often poisons aquifers at one end, poisons homes at the other end. I mean, look up air pollution from gas home fixtures and be frightened. But the methane being emitted into our atmosphere is bad, really bad. Methane in our atmosphere traps heat, like 80 times as much heat as carbon dioxide. Not for as long. Carbon dioxide could stick around for thousands of years. Methane's up there grabbing the heat for decades instead of millennia. But it really is powerful for those decades. And these are important decades right now. we got enough heat going on already. So natural gas is no more natural than any other fossil fuel. And it's a climate crisis generating monster calling it the low-emitting, greener power production option is a pretty extreme spin. 
but the spinning isn't done. The guys I sat with at lunch this week, they shared that renewable natural gas needs to be part of our greener energy solutions. And I agree, but uh, I, I'm feeling spun again because renewable natural gas is not natural gas. It's the rebranding of methane emitted through some microbial digestion. The burps of cows and rotting manure emits methane because of the little bacteria that are digesting. Um, dumps can emit methane. Giant wood chip piles can emit methane. Bogs emit methane, particularly when they're disturbed or drying out and dying. Thawing permafrost emits methane. So human activities are upping the planet's methane emissions on many fronts. But almost all of this methane is very difficult to capture as a power source. Way harder than the kinds of mining systems they have set up to frack natural gas out of deep, deep underground. There are some exceptions, though, like the city of Thunder Bay put a methane capture system into our landfill on John Street years ago. It fuels a power generation station, generates quite a bit of power. It feeds our grid enough energy to power a whole neighborhood. It does not use all the methane being emitted by John Street. Instead, they're burning off some of it, so it's not methane, which is so terrible, but just carbon dioxide going into our atmosphere. So there's, there's potential to generate more energy if we want to build on that precedent there. And this is a proven technology, absolutely. This recently rebranded renewable natural gas, otherwise known as methane. And there are methane power generation systems for dumps. There are methane power generation systems for cattle feed lots cooking down the manure that builds up in those overpopulated, or should I say, overpopulated spaces. Sorry, couldn't help myself. There are methane power generation systems from cooking down wood fiber. One's being proposed in, in, in northwest Ontario in Nipigon or Greenstone, like right now. But I can't see us capturing enough methane from garbage and manure, even wood fiber, to fill all those gas pipes connecting our homes and businesses fueling our furnaces and, and stoves. The electrification of homes and businesses, it's got to happen. Natural gas infrastructure and home utilities is a thing of the past. We need to wean ourselves from it, just like all the other fossil fuels. And most cities in the world, certainly in North America, Europe, and much of Asia, are insisting that new appliances not be natural gas that they be electrical, which is what Enbridge clearly avoided saying. That was the silent hub of the spin in their presentation to their employees I heard about over lunch this week. At least, that's my understanding of what I heard. Save the mothers, let us clear their way, let them have this same feed our tomorrow. In fact, as we figure out how to save our mother trees, our mother blueberry bushes, our mother's soil, so that we manage our wild woods more sustainably, I think good look, looks like a lot less people-produced methane and carbon. I mean, we are still spraying herbicides on our forests here in northwestern Ontario, killing the underbrush and the trees that are not the species the company plans on harvesting. Not because those other living things are competing. That whole theory has been completely debunked. No, no, no. The reason given now is simply 
to keep them out of the way so that the trees they want to harvest can be harvested more cost-efficiently. Purposely killing living things and releasing carbon in our atmosphere as it dies and rots, that's how forestry is being done around here still. It gives me images of Agent Orange sprayed over the forests of Vietnam 60 or 70 years ago. That is not what good looks like. Good looks like valuing the wild and humbly honoring its power to rebound, renew, and feed us all, like Phil was saying. As we figure out how to look good and do good more ways and more often, I would expect us to generate less and less methane or renewable natural gas, if you want to call it that, and save more mothers so they can renew our world, rebuild our resilience and our resources. Thank you, Phil McGuire, for our conversation. Thank you for saving the mothers and talking about saving the mothers. Thank you to my niece, Leah McKay, for helping promote and for designing the look of Something Different This Way Comes, and thank you for listening. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to help make it happen, maybe if you would buy me a coffee, if we were to bond into each other at a coffee shop, or, or a pint if you saw me at a bar as a kind of way of thanking me for doing this, well, consider doing just that by sponsoring the show. You can click the GoFundMe link on the front of my website page. If you can't, that's fine too, though. Someone else will. And I'd get a helping hand and a meaty thanks, which would be great. Heather McLeod, and this podcast is my personal project. I speak on behalf of no one but myself. I share the things I reference in the show on my website, along with a script I write before recording, lyrics to the songs, I even have the chords for you this week, and some, some pictures too. Visit www.somethingdifferentthiswaycomes.ca join me again next Tuesday. We'll be talking about, get ready, I know you'll be excited, capital and income and what good looks like when it comes to building our security in an insecure world. It'll be fun. Something different this way comes something. Something different. Something different. Something different this way comes something. Something Something did.